Um, so we're going to jump right in, and this is the updated definition of pulmonary hypertension. And so, uh, you know, so I, you know, I'm PGY 20 now, which is kind of hard to say, but one of the things that I remembered for the bulk of my training was that a pulmonary hypertension was a mean PA pressure in excess of 25 millimeters of mercury, and that changed. It changed last year when they redefined pulmonary hypertension in these groups as a mean PA pressure, um, you know, for basically when they wanted to define uh, pre-capillary pH, post-capillary pH, and pre-post-capillary pH, they gave these uh, different definitions where they lowered the number to 20 millimeters of mercury. And I want to emphasize a few things here. They brought back this pulmonary vascular resistance, or uh, PVR, and we're going to review this briefly, kind of what this is and the significance. But really, the take-home point, if you're going into practice and you're interested in pulmonary hypertension, is that pre-capillary pH can be groups 1, 3, 4, and 5. So what I see sometimes, especially with my own fellows, is that you have pre-capillary pulmonary hypertension, and there's a, a reflex that this could be uh, group 1 pulmonary hypertension when that is uh, definitely not the case. And then they uh, define kind of isolated post-capillary pH, which is our traditional pure model that we would think of as kind of left heart failure, where there is pulmonary hypertension, but it's solely driven by elevations in the left-sided filling pressures. And then there's this entity, which I think they first defined in 2013, and then they're fleshing out a little bit more in 2018, which is this combined pre-post-capillary pH, where there is a post-capillary component, but there is also an elevated pulmonary vascular resistance. And so these are the definitions. And so the question is why? You know, why did they change this uh, definition of pulmonary hypertension? And so this definition has existed for 40 years. Um, as is greater than or equal to 25 millimeters of mercury. And so I, you know, I'm not really a public health expert, you know, which goes into when they redefine cholesterol levels or hemoglobin A1C or what defines sleep apnea. I think there's a lot that goes into that. But from a pH standpoint, you know, I think there is enough literature to say that a normal mean PA pressure is around 14 millimeters of mercury. And then if you look to two standard deviations beyond that, you get to this 20 millimeters of mercury number. Um, so I think that's where the definition came from. The problem with this is, and for you guys who have been in the cath lab or, you know, floated swans at the bedside, or even when you look at other waveforms, A-lines, you know that a pressure tracing is not like a BNP level. Um, it's not like a hemoglobin A1C. There's a lot of variability in the tracing. There's respiratory variations. And so um, it's not kind of as simple as a hemoglobin A1C measurement. So um, it is what it is. You know, I, I think this is what the scientists chose to do with pulmonary hypertension. So it has been redefined. Okay, so why pulmonary vascular resistance? Um, so PVR, as you guys know, is just kind of uh, uh, the pressure at the start of the circuit in, uh, subtracted from the pressure at the end of the circuit overflow. So kind of the pulmonary adaptation to the systemic vascular uh, resistance. And so, you know, this was removed from the definition uh, kind of in 2012, and then they added it back again, which I think was a good thing in 2019. So PVR is um, 
important. Because as you guys know, there are many causes of pulmonary hypertension um, that may be just related to flow. So if you have a high cardiac output from sickle cell disease or from an AV fistula or from anemia or from thyrotoxicosis or from any other high output state, that can drive pulmonary hypertension that can cause high pressure, uh, but that shouldn't necessarily increase your pulmonary vascular resistance. And so I encourage you, and we try to do this in the cath lab, though it doesn't always happen, is to report a pulmonary vascular resistance which, with every uh, right heart cath. Um, so this is a requirement for precapillary pulmonary hypertension, not just group one, but other types of precapillary pulmonary hypertension, which was evident in the definitions. Um, okay, so I think, you know, everyone should be comfortable with the definitions of pulmonary hypertension. And really the take-home point is, number one, the mean PA pressure cutoff, and number two, this realization that precapillary pulmonary hypertension does not equate to pulmonary arterial hypertension. There are significant differences. We're going to go quickly through these uh, uh, classification schemes um, because I think uh, we have a pretty savvy audience here. So, uh, idiopathic PAH is rare. Heritable PAH is increasing being, increasingly being recognized. And we are trying to do genetic testing in all of our idiopathic PAH patients. So this is kind of new within the past six months. It's obviously been on hold for the last two and a half months as we've been shut down. Uh, but we do have a process, you know, with the commercial testing kits where we do send um, a basic genetic panel that includes uh, BMPR2 and the more common mutations. And that came out of the latest guidelines is recognizing that a large percentage of patients who were previously thought to be idiopathic may carry some mutations um, and, in fact, have heritable pulmonary arterial hypertension. This drug in toxin-induced, we don't see it as much. I think we have one patient who came from Colorado that had amphetamine-induced pulmonary arterial hypertension. And I think there may be a veteran who I follow with um, uh, drug-associated pulmonary arterial hypertension. But we don't see this uh, nearly as much. There are several uh, chemotherapy drugs which have been implicated here as well. The bulk of what we see is here, connective tissue disease-associated PAH, that's mainly scleroderma and mixed connective tissue disease. HIV infection, the initial data said 0.5% of patients with HIV may develop PAH, but I think the more uh, later data suggests this might be higher. Portal hypertension, anywhere between 2%, 4%, and up to 8%. It really depends on what case series you use. As you guys know, that liver disease cirrhosis is a high output state, and it's very important to use a pulmonary vascular resistance in these liver patients. Congenital heart disease, I think, makes sense. Schistosomiasis is obviously a rare condition here. And kind of this PVOD, PCH is always an interesting diagnosis that comes up uh, kind of time and time again. And uh, we have done a few more lung biopsies. Um, I think we have yet to have a biopsy done, which has showed pulmonary venom-occlusive disease here within the past couple of years. There was one done at Hopkins, and then Dr. Burke reviewed it with us here and felt that the findings were not consistent with pulmonary veno-occlusive disease. Uh, just moving through these pretty quickly, uh, in terms of left heart disease, really the change in the latest guidelines was they added this 
congenital acquired cardiovascular conditions leading to post-capillary pulmonary hypertension. So they felt a need to add that subcategory. And then pulmonary hypertension due to lung disease, um, I think is relatively uh, straightforward. Uh, group four pulmonary hypertension, kind of they added this other pulmonary artery obstructions and the updated definitions. And then they simplified group five a little bit Kind of the bulk here is on hematologic disorders. They have systemic and metabolic disorders, which uh, includes sarcoidosis and renal failure. And then they added complex congenital heart disease here as well. So these are the definitions. And I think that's the language that's used in pulmonary hypertension. So similar to other classification schemes, using this group is very, very important, um, both for insurance purposes as well as to um, kind of so everyone understands what you're thinking about with, with your pulmonary hypertension. So why does this matter? I think this is pretty straightforward. You know, giving pulmonary vasodilators and group 2 pulmonary hypertension can be deleterious and cause pulmonary edema. Um, obviously, using vasodilators indiscriminately with patients with parenchymal lung disease, COPD, can worsen VQ mismatch and worsen hypoxia. You don't want to treat group four pulmonary hypertension with vasodilators without considering them for a thromboendarterectomy. And then the group five pulmonary hypertension, there really is no literature uh, of you know, quality supporting vasodilators in this patient population. So this classification scheme does have significant therapeutic implications. The pathophysiology of pulmonary hypertension, I, I think we understand this uh, fairly well. Uh, we think about it as a probably some um, genetic predisposition or some predisposing factors, which then may be um, there may be environmental factors or other things that trigger an abnormality, kind of this two-hit hypothesis, which then leads to vascular injury, which if not recognized and not treated, will lead to disease progression. So we know we focused when this slide was published, which is what, 2000, the emphasis was on the BMPR2 gene, which again is still the most common uh, mutation in hereditary pulmonary arterial hypertension, but several other genetic mutations have also been identified as well. In terms of the vascular injury, there are probably at least 40 molecular abnormalities which have now been identified. The problem is the commercially available treatments still focus on nitric oxide and prostacycline deficiency in over our production of endothelin-1. And so none of the other therapeutic targets have actually made it out of phase three clinical trials. And so that's why the emphasis remains on those three. And then with progression, you know, we get this uh, kind of smooth muscle cell hypertrophy and this in situ thrombosis. And so it's very important for PAH, this is in situ thrombosis, which needs to be distinguished from the thromboembolism that occurs in group four pulmonary hypertension. And then plexiform lesions, which if we see them on lung biopsy are the pathological hallmark of pulmonary arterial hypertension. So just a little bit on the right heart catheterization. I think we're all aware that this is required for a diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension. Um, but I want to talk about the vasodilator challenge. And so, you know, this is required to identify vasoreactive pulmonary arterial hypertension, which may respond to calcium channel blockers. The presence or absence of vasoreactivity does not predict 
whether someone will have a response to prostacyclines or sildenafil or endothelial receptor antagonists. It's solely used in the decision tree to say whether someone should initially be trialed on a calcium channel blocker. So just because someone's not vasoreactive does not mean that they may not respond favorably to uh, those other classes of drugs. So this is a change in the updated guidelines. This is recommended for idiopathic and hereditary pulmonary arterial hypertension. This is no longer recommended for all the other types of pulmonary arterial hypertension. So CTD, PAH, or uh, cirrhosis causing pulmonary arterial hypertension, this doesn't necessarily always need a vasodilator challenge. The problem is insurers sometimes require this information prior to paying for medications. So it's hard to get, it used to be hard to get troprostanil or eproprostanil approved without a vasodilator challenge. Hopefully that will change, but they really uh, tailored for whom a vasodilator challenge is indicated. And I think this was based on data that connective tissue disease patients just really were so infrequently vasoreactive that uh, it was impractical to do. So in our lab, we use inhaled nitric oxide. In other labs, they use adenosine. And where I trained at Pittsburgh, they used um, intravenous eproprostanol for their uh, vasodilator challenges. And this is a definition, and uh, I, I think uh, we should know this definition, a drop uh, to a mean less than 40 with a fall greater than 10 with our unchanged or increased cardiac output. I think in the entire practice, there are one, maybe two vasoreactive PAH patients. So it's definitely a minority. So the way this works, you know, assuming someone is metacompensated, is you put them on amlodipine, and then you increase the dose, and then you cast them again in several months, and you see are they still vasoreactive, they still have PAH, and if they are, you can increase the dose further. So sometimes these patients are on doses of amlodipine, 10 BID, 15 BID, assuming it's tolerated, to try to see if you can treat that component of vasoconstriction uh, that's causing the PAH. And again, it's very important that these patients should be followed very, very closely because deterioration has been described in previously stable calcium channel responders. Um, so these patients, you know, they do, they're the ones whose mean PA pressures are 60, and then you put them on amlodipine and they come down to 20. So I think they have a favorable prognosis. There are not many of them, but they do, they do really well. Um, so there's guaranteed to be some right heart cast questions on your boards. There's probably going to be a vasodilator challenge question. So just be aware. Uh, and again, if you are vasoresponsive, vaso, uh, the treatment would be calcium channel blockers prior to going on uh, a pulmonary arterial vasodilator. So this is a uh, classification scheme kind of going over the diagnostic evaluation. And I bring this up primarily to highlight the fact that echocardiogram is the uh, screening test of choice if someone has symptoms, signs, or a history suggestive of pulmonary hypertension. Uh, and so if you have dyspnea and you think you have allowed P2 or, uh, you know, other physical findings, a TR murmur, uh, then echocardiogram is really the next uh, test of choice. Um, and this is kind of just uh, zoomed up here uh, so everyone is aware. 
when we look at the echo and you look at the echo report, I just want to emphasize the importance of focusing on some other metrics beside the right ventricular systolic pressure and um, specifically focusing on, you know, ventricular size and the presence of, you know, septal flattening in this RVLV ratio. Sometimes I think this is reported on the CT scans as well. Flattening of the interventricular septum. I think both of these things are very are, are valuable. Um, looking at the pulmonary artery, specifically the Doppler of the right ventricular outflow tract, we look at PA acceleration time and what's called mid-systolic notching. We look at pulmonary artery size. Again, this one is better seen on CT scan than on echo. Right atrial size is valuable as well. The IVC diameter, I think, is sometimes not necessarily as helpful. But really moving beyond the right ventricular systolic pressure, because as you can imagine, you know, we look at the TR velocity. What's the velocity of the tricuspid regurgitant jet? And if you have wide open tricuspid regurgitation because the RV is so enlarged, the leaflets don't collapse properly, there may actually be a low velocity and you could underestimate the pulmonary artery pressures. And there's a wealth of data to suggest that there is significant variability between the echo-derived RVSP and the hemodynamic-derived RVSP from the cath lab. I'm not going to go into that data uh, with this talk. So just keeping in mind, you know, if the patient has a good history but your RVSP is not that elevated, uh, being aware for some of these other variables that can be assessed by echocardiogram. And this is a nice, uh, you know, review article that's a little bit uh, dated at this point in time. Uh, but the point you know, I want to make is that we focus on the uh, bottom row uh, here. You know, there is uh, kind of three uh, different patients, pre-capillary pH, this one combined pre-post, and then post-capillary. And you can see they all have a pH systolic pressure in, ex excuse me, in excess of 80 millimeters of uh, mercury. So they all have severe pulmonary hypertension. Uh, but there are obviously significant differences, um, kind of, and they highlight them here, pulmonary arterial hypertension versus pulmonary venous hypertension or group two enlargement, kind of emphasizing left atrial size is abnormal in pulmonary venous hypertension. Um, the direction of the way the interatrial septum may be um, bowing, um, and some Doppler measurements of um, left atrial pressure and left ventricular end diastolic pressure. So kind of some important stuff that you can glean from the echocardiogram to help in the decision making because definitely in our practice, this is one of the biggest concerns that comes up. Is it pulmonary hypertension or pulmonary venous hypertension? I have a case at the end that hopefully um, we can uh, get to. Um, so let me, um, let me see if I can, hopefully we'll get to the case at the, uh, at the end. So can you convert the RVSP on echo to a mean pulmonary artery pressure? I do not think you can do this reliably. Um, we can, there's a way to measure the mean pulmonary pressure on echo. We don't routinely do it. There is a regression equation that uses the pulmonary artery acceleration time. So there is a way that I think you um, can do it. We don't do it routinely. And so we don't routinely report this. It's oftentimes unreliable. I did find one study, you know, 
that said that if your mean PA pressure is greater than 20, like 20, 21, 22, that generally correlates to an RVFT of 35 to 40 millimeters of mercury. Uh, but again, I, I, I think that this correlation, while it exists, is generally weak, and we um, can lead ourselves astray. There's a wealth of literature, especially in the, um, the COPD world, suggesting tremendous inaccuracy of RVSP um, and uh, hemodynamic measurements of pulmonary artery pressure. So uh, we don't usually do this um, in our echo reports. So we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about the prevalence of pulmonary arterial hypertension. Uh, and so, you know, pH is rare. And it's much easier to get this data from, from Europe because there are much fewer PAH centers and all the patients are funneled into just a few hubs. In the United Kingdom, um, definitely in places like Germany or France or the Netherlands or Sweden, there's usually one or two centers and you can get very good epidemiology data. Now, obviously, our demographic makeup in the United States is very, very different than the demographic makeup of these European countries. So we don't know. You know, we don't know what the prevalence of pulmonary arterial hypertension really is in the United States. You know, some of our patients are, um, it's very different geographically. Um, it's, I think suffice to say that PAH is a rare disease. You know, in Maryland, we see kind of a decent number of portopulmonary hypertension patients. And probably the bulk of our patients are connective tissue disease. At Johns Hopkins, you know, with their large scleroderma center, the bulk of the patients they see as well are connective tissue disease patients. There's not a huge HIV patient population in Baltimore, but we have some HIV patients as well. And we have a not trivial number of uh, congenital heart disease patients also. But PAH is rare, um, you know, but obviously pulmonary hypertension is not. There is a whole lot of pulmonary hypertension, probably on a daily basis when I'm in clinic, um, when you're in clinic, uh, probably a, a large number of the patients have pulmonary hypertension. So I'm going to go through some of these quickly. Um, group 2 pulmonary hypertension is half-path. And I think even in pulmonary medicine, uh, you're going to see a lot of half-path. And what's helpful for me is not throwing up my hands and saying, oh, it's half past, there's nothing we can do about it, is trying to understand what may be driving the half path. So how can we phenotype the half path? Is it someone who has predominant hypertension, systemic hypertension that may be driving it? Is it someone who may be having significant atrial fibrillation and loss of atrial kick? may be driving a lot of their symptoms and restoring sinus rhythm may be valuable. Is it someone who has significant valvular heart disease that needs to be uh, intervened upon? You know, or are there people where obesity, you know, causes a lot more of the diastolic dysfunction? So I think that understanding a little bit more about what may be driving it, and I think this is helpful. I think we all know patients who we cardiovert and they feel awesome. And there are other people who we try to cardiovert and it doesn't work and they don't feel any different at all. But what we do is we get their systemic blood pressure much lower and they feel better. 
Um, so that would be half pass. Again, in the cath lab, if you see a 70-year-old and their pulmonary capillary wedge pressure is 8 or 7 or 10, obviously that patient is much more likely to have group 2 pulmonary hypertension. And so we do fluid challenges a lot more now than we did five or six years ago, and we exercise patients to unmask HEFPEF, all right? So if you have an elderly patient, you know, coming in, uh, they may have severe pulmonary hypertension, but the pretest probability still states they're likely to have HEFPEF, and we have a low threshold for giving fluid and exercising them. Okay, what do we do for HEFPEF? Really not a lot. Um, I just want to bring your attention to spironolactone. Um, this was a TopCat study published in 2014. You know, going quickly through TopCat, this really looked at patients with HEFPEF who had symptoms, and this was a global study. And if you look at the primary uh, endpoint, you know, there was no, you know, nothing in the combined endpoint of survival or hospitalizations. But if you just look at hospitalizations itself, there was a reduced risk of heart failure hospitalizations. And um, this is kind of here, you know, showing these curves here in terms of the primary endpoint. The problem with the study was if you, there was a lower event rate in um, Georgia, this is Georgia in, in Europe, as well as Russia, and if you kind of separated it out into the North America, South America, and took out the Europeans, there did appear to be a benefit of spironolactone versus placebo, and we think this is largely driven by the antifibrotic effect of spironolactone. So the take-home point, I think, from Tomcat is for HEF-PEF, uh, there is a benefit to spironolactone. And even in PAH, I don't have time to get to this data, but there's compelling data definitely with ambrosentan and ERAs, but even in general, from an antifibrotic effect, possibly in terms of beneficial effects in RV remodeling, that spironolactone may uh, be of use. Um, okay, sildenafil, uh, I think everyone uses sildenafil a lot. Um, this is Guazi's first paper on this. Uh, it's now nine years old, showing just really remarkable improvement in pulmonary vascular resistance in patients with HEFPEF treated with sildenafil that was not only uh, pretty significant, but was sustained at 12 months. No one has been able to reproduce this data. So no one has been able to get this degree of benefit with sildenafil. We tried in the United States. This is now an older study. This is relaxed heart failure. At HLBI, it was an echo study. And in fact, in this study, there was a trend towards harm with using sildenafil for HEFPEF. Okay, this study had some problems, but it was the NIH's best attempt to try to answer this question. NIH tried again. This was with PITCH-HF looking at tadalafil in heart failure. This was PITCH-HF, a lot of fanfare in 2013-2014. The study was canceled because of poor enrollment. So we just could not get any traction. But what are we doing? So this was a more recent study uh, published uh, just this past year. It looked at the, the VA, and they looked at 35,000 veterans based on diagnostic codes with group two, group three pulmonary hypertension. And of those 35,000 veterans, they found that 
around 1,600 of them were receiving prescriptions for a phosphodiesterase inhibitor. And when they looked, you know, who was getting a phosphodiesterase inhibitor, you know, what were the odds that they were getting one? Kind of the biggest odd was someone, your private doctor gave you a phosphodiesterase inhibitor and you continued it at the VA, which I think happens a lot. I think, you know, I have a clinic at the VA and probably many of you do as well. And a lot of times people come to the VA just to get medications. Um, but I, I bring this up just to say that even in 2020, we are probably not doing as good as we are when it comes to who gets phosphodiesterase uh, inhibitors. And you would think the VA being a capitated system would be a little bit better. So this is the most recent data that I've seen suggesting that there is still over-discriminant use of phosphodiesterase inhibitors for both group 2 pulmonary hypertension, this was a kind of a combination of group 2 and group 3 uh, pH. So just kind of this study, mafetentin uh, is an endothelial and receptor antagonist. Um, and so this study in 2018 looked at mafetentin and pH with LV dysfunction. And what they found was, although there was an increase in adverse effects in the mafetentin group, Mesotentin did seem to lower N-terminal pro-BNP. So this was kind of hypothesis generating and led to the serenade study. This study is done. It was a mesotentin HEFPEP study. We enrolled three patients at the medical center and uh, results are pending. We should get them sometime in 2020, whether uh, there is a benefit of this drug in HEFPEP. Uh, there was another study looking at oral remodulin, which is a prostacycline. That study was terminated prematurely uh, because of poor enrollment and lack of benefit. So again, HEFPEF is like our black box without getting any uh, treatments for pH HEFPEF. Um, I'm going to skip this slide and get to group 3 pulmonary hypertension. Um, so pulmonary hypertension associated with lung disease. And we're going to start with a case. You know, this is a patient that... Um, a uh, 72-year-old guy with a history of cabbage, did well until 2018 when he developed dyspnea, and um, he was cast at that time by his cardiologist. He had patent bypass crafts. This was a left heart cast. Kind of uh, looking at his pulmonary history, he had a remote history. It was called organizing pneumonia and pulmonary fibrosis. He underwent a lung biopsy, which was reported as inconclusive. This was not done at our center. And he had PFTs done, that these were in 2019, that showed reduced lung volume, mild airway obstruction, and a severe reduction in the diffusion capacity of carbon monoxide. Uh, let me show you his echocardiograms. These were done in the summer of 2019. Let me see if I can get these to play. So this is parasternal long axis showing a severely enlarged RV with LV. Um, underfilled and normal EF. This is parasternal short axis. Again, similar, very large right ventricle and a small underfilled uh, left ventricle and a D-shaped septum, kind of a large eccentricity index, RV to LV ratio. And finally, his apical four-chamber view really highlighting this really abnormal right ventricular systolic function and a small or left ventricle, so very abnormal. And um, just some, you know, images of his uh, CAT scan, you know, for you to review, kind of showing 
more predominant fibrotic changes at the at the bases um, kind of anterior as well as uh, posterior and I think that's how it was it was read so this patient was followed in pulmonary medicine um, and then uh, was uh, referred to us in kind of the summer of 2019 and he had this heart cath here which I'll show you kind of so uh, really the hemodynamics are precapillary pulmonary hypertension. The pulmonary vascular resistance is high. And, you know, this guy did not get a, a fluid challenge in the cath lab, which is something that I probably would have done, you know, because statistically speaking, he would be much more likely to have either group two pulmonary hypertension or a combined pre-postcapillary pulmonary hypertension. But, you know, based on these resting hemodynamics without an intervention, really phenotype is precapillary pulmonary hypertension. And then we did some serologies on him, and he had an abnormal ANA and some abnormal, um, an abnormal, abnormal myositis panel, kind of suggesting antisynthetase syndrome. So that's how we worked up his pulmonary hypertension. So it kind of sets the stage for real-world pulmonary hypertension, older guy, fibrosis, inconclusive biopsy, some abnormal serology. So as you think about this, you know, what would you call his pH group and what would you do with this gentleman who is older, kind of in terms of uh, his management? So group three pH is complicated. Um, Dr. Klingler, who I, I think uh, is well published in this regard, um, and I'm just going to read from what he wrote in one of his papers, which kind of gets to the crux of the problem, is pH associated with chronic lung disease with an unavoidable consequence of the underlying damage that is done to the lungs, or are chronic lung diseases capable of inciting a pulmonary vascular disease that is separate from and out of proportion to the underlying lung injury? And I would, I would say that we don't know, or at least I don't know. Um, everyone recognizes hypoxia plays a role in the development and propagation and worsening of pulmonary hypertension, but we all recognize that it's a lot more than just hypoxia. Um, and so this is a heterogeneous group. There are probably some phenotypic buckets that would respond to vasodilators. We don't know exactly what they are, um, but I think this is really the, the, main, the main question. I think every time I go to a meeting, I try to go to one of these symposiums, and, and, and I, I don't really find knowledge that helps me advance what I do on the front lines in terms of treating these patients. So in terms of pH related to COPD, it's rare to have severe pH. I know these are older studies, um, you know, but those with kind of a mean pH pressure greater than 35 is distinctly uncommon. Both of these studies really suggested that mild pH, and at this time they were looking at 25, was fairly common in the COPD uh, patient population. So pretty rare. Um, these patients do terrible. This is just one study, uh, you know, looking at patients with chronic lung disease, really suggesting that COPD is a pretty stable disease. Um, and it's only when, actually other things can make you sick, but when pulmonary hypertension develops for whatever reason, the prognosis is incredibly poor. Um, and this is a review that Steve did, um, you know, looking at COPD and pulmonary hypertension. And it was a very nice uh, review, kind of a case-based review. And again, you know, he summarizes the data suggesting, you know, that there's really no consistent benefit. You could try still Denafil, um, but again, there's no really 
robust data or science to do it. And we've tried treating these people with sildenafil, and I would say some patients get better, some get worse. So I don't know if it's a placebo effect. The question is, why do you treat them? And this gets to kind of that VA paper. And part of it is what you guys will see, which is kind of being a, being a doctor. You know, when you get a patient referred to you, you obviously don't want to not practice evidence-based medicine, you know, but if you have someone who is ill and you may want to try to help or you feel like they need time to come to terms with their disease or prognosis, um, sometimes initiating a treatment which may have benefit uh, is something that you do. And it's easier to do now because sildenafil is generic and patients aren't going to lose a lot of money paying for it even if insurance doesn't cover it. So uh, it may not, it's, so we recognize that it's not necessarily evidence-based, but part of being a doctor sometimes is trying to get your patient to, on their journey, this pulmonary hypertension is a journey. And if they're not ready to go from point A to point B, sometimes the sildenafil may help them, it may hurt them, but I found that it, it helps them come to terms with their disease process and kind of understanding and acceptance. And so uh, I would say that, uh, uh, you know, quoting literature to patients sometimes is not necessarily uh, the best approach to getting them to buy into what you want them to do. Um, ILD pH, I want to spend a little bit more time here because there's some excitement here. So this was an abstract done in 2015 by Aaron Waxman, who I think is at the, uh, the Brigham. And they looked at patients with ILD and COPD, and they treated them with inhaled troposinil, which is branded as Tyvaso. And what they found was these patients got better. So patients with chronic lung disease, that's inhaled troposinil. So the troposinil molecule, you kind of inhale it directly to the lung, so hopefully you minimize systemic effects, maybe less VQ mismatch, whatever the mechanism, they did better. So this started, this study, which was uh, kind of the RIN-PH study, now goes by increase. It was a 16-week, you know, initially a randomized study, and then an open-label extension study with patients with mainly ILD, um, to Tyveso versus placebo. Okay, we put five patients into this study at Maryland, um, so which for us was actually pretty good. One patient with IPF, you know, we were able to, he was an old man actually with, who had a cabbage and a Tavar, and we lowered his pressure significantly that he was able to get a single lung transplant, and he's actually did uh, quite well. Another patient, we lowered her pressure significantly uh, but she was non-compliant afterwards, and she died recently of kind of, I guess, related conditions. And we had a third patient we're hoping to write her cat soon. And the other two, uh, one died of influenza, unfortunately. So our own experience was quite positive, and they just kind of had these preliminary results. This isn't a press release from March. The company has not released the formal data. I think that's getting ready to be published but they met their primary endpoint of increasing the six-minute walk distance by 21 meters. This was irrespective of the etiology to the ILD age and baseline hemodynamics, and they met their secondary endpoints by time to clinical worsening and reduction in N-terminal pro-BNP. So this is actually very, very exciting that for patients with ILD-associated pulmonary hypertension, 
either if it's IPF or related to a connective tissue disease, that this uh, drug may lead to symptomatic improvement and reduce clinical worsening. So I, I'm hopeful that this may get uh, FDA approval sometime in 2020. The problem is Tybeso is expensive, you know, $10,000, $12,000 a month, especially if these patients are also on OFAV or other, uh, you know, disease-modifying drugs, the cost to treat this condition becomes very, very high, and I don't know, you know, what insurance is going to say about that. But this is probably the coolest development in the pulmonary hypertension space in the past three years uh, with this uh, preliminary results of the increased study. So very, very exciting. I think this will be something we'll look more towards uh, coming up. Um, so in the interest of time, I just have a few minutes, and Steve gave an excellent talk on CTEF just um, within the past couple of months. And so I'm going to skip through a couple of these things here um, just to get to um, uh, just the very end, actually. Uh, so risk assessment and pulmonary hypertension. Uh, this is a reveal risk score. There are now many risk scores uh, that you can use. Um, but I find the risk scores helpful for select patients. Number one is a low-risk patient who is really scared about PAH, and I find it to reassure them that PAH is a bad disease, but you're on the favorable spectrum, and I think that you will do well. The other is a patient who's actually unwell, but is unwilling to go on parenteral prostacyclines or be referred for a lung transplant. And I use it to emphasize to them, you know, you really are doing poorly and we think you need to move along with this. So I find this risk assessment helpful for the low-risk patient for reassurance and the high-risk patient so I can motivate them to get the treatment that they need. And this has been validated. Again, other risk scores are more newer than this and have been validated as well. But they all encompass a lot of these basic metrics, natriuretic peptides, walk distance, some echo findings, and some hemodynamic findings as well. In terms of treating pH, I really don't want to spend too much time on this. I think it's kind of uh, not very interesting. I think you know, if your disease is less sick, we start with oral drugs, and the combination of ambrosensin and tadalafil was studied in the AMBITION study, shown to be beneficial. Uh, early reassessment is, is, is critical, and for patients who progress, I think they need parenteral drugs as kind of the basic treatment paradigm. But again, treatment is very uninteresting. Uh, PVD-omics is very cool. Um, I think six or seven sites, Hopkins is one of them, kind of doing this deep phenotyping of pulmonary hypertension. So they get MRI, they get CPET, they get blood, they get all this stuff. And, it's kind of a snapshot in time, so they get this one visit. And the hope is you can identify clusters who may, I don't know, a cluster of patients with ILD who may respond to whatever treatment. Uh, the cool thing about PVD omics is it's group one, group two, group three, group four. So it's really a uh, all, kind, all comers of pH. And so hopefully PVD omics will uh, lead to different uh, our understanding of pulmonary hypertension in a lot of different ways. And so usually at every meeting now, there's, you know, some symposiums on this PVD-omics, and hopefully they'll now be able to share more data 
as it becomes uh, as it becomes available. Uh, I think COVID really affected our ability to move along with this. this is a fully implantable troprosinol pump. So no Hickman, no bad kind of the pump is implanted under the skin and the patients once a month get kind of the medicine injected into a reservoir and this is kind of tunneled into the subclavian vein. So we were kind of moving along with getting this process uh, going and then coronavirus came and everything has been put on hold. And um, I don't know where this is going to go now. It's so hard just to get a heart cast done that um, this is on hold. I think it's on hold across the country, though. But this, I think, will be a breakthrough for our patients. Cardiomams, the implantable hemodynamic monitor, they can do this in Virginia. They can do this in Texas. Our Medicare carrier does not pay for it, so we cannot get this at Maryland. This is kind of put in. It, this little thing sits in the pulmonary artery. It doesn't require a battery or a generator, and then the patient kind of sleeps on a pillow and it captures data. Your, your systolic pressure, PA, your mean PA pressure, and your PA diastolic pressure. And so you get this data. The hope is that you can identify decompensations earlier in some of your sicker patients. And so, again, something we have wanted to get now, gosh, for years, uh, but Medicare has, not, Medicare has not funded this although the study was shown to reduce hospitalizations. So neither here nor there. So back to our patient, kind of the end of the talk, MS. You know, so we treated him with inhaled triprostanil. Um, kind of it was felt that his PA pressures were really quite elevated, this antisynthetase syndrome, kind of possibly an inflammatory component. I think uh, Dr. Shaw, I think Nirav was his pulmonologist, and Nirav put him on mycophenolate as well. Uh, for his anti-synthetase anti syndrome. Repeat hemodynamics, he was hospitalized recently, showed his PVR had gone from around 10 or 11 to 7. His echo looked better, and I think he's undergoing lung transplant evaluation. He's still pretty symptomatic, uh, this guy. So I'm going to stop there. It's, uh, let me see what the time is. It's 4.50. Uh, so I know we covered a lot of ground. Um, and it's really a very cursory overview. Uh, kind of didn't do justice to a lot of these topics, but I'll stop and see if anyone has any uh, questions or, um, I don't know, uh, someone has the comments that they can read them off. We can try to answer a few questions while we have time. Any questions on any of the ground that we covered, pulmonary hypertension? Dr. Romani, thank you uh, so much for the talk and um, flattered by the mention. Um, I wondered, in terms of uh, another patient population that we see fairly frequently in the Midtown Clinic, um, if you wouldn't mind commenting on um, your experiences with uh, sarcoidosis patients who have advanced sarcoidosis and fibrocystic lung disease and uh, the effectiveness of the uh, pulmonary vasodilators in that group. Yeah, it's a really good question, you know, sarcoid pulmonary hypertension. and I. You know, I think, Steve, the challenge is, is phenotyping the patient um, and, you know, how much, you know, parenchymal destruction do they have, how much, you know, myocardial involvement do they have, how much left heart dysfunction that they have. And no one knows the, the answer. Uh, and, and I'll give you, in, in a perfect example, just regionally, you know, what's going on. Uh, there was a patient that we, that, you know, was, followed in Hopkins for sarcoid pH, 
a very young woman actually who's had sarcoid for a long time and then she was just on sildenafil and then you know they declined her for lung transplant at Hopkins got sent to Inova and within a month Inova started her on IV remodulin and they put her up to 50 nanograms per kilogram per minute of IV remodulin and then they declined her for transplant and then she came to us and so we've been following her and she really felt no better on the remodulin in fact, her hypoxia seemed like it was worse. And I think the team here is working her up for a heart-lung transplant. And so I think there is such uh, heterogeneity in terms of the way to treat this disease. Um, I don't know that there is a right answer. I think that um, there's definitely some people who respond to vasodilators. and. Um, if there's, if we don't have much to offer, an insurance will pay for it for a trial. Part of me thinks it may make sense to try just because there are responders, and I can't predict. Obviously, if you have significant scarring, significant cystic disease, you know, that patient, you're very hypoxic, may not respond. Um, but in the young patient, you know, and you're talking about heart-lung transplant or double-lung transplant in a 40-year-old or a 50-year-old, which is not an ideal situation also. So I, I feel like it's a polarizing topic, and you go to meetings and people present their best cases or their successes, which are very hard to translate back into practice. So uh, I know that, you know, the INOVA group was, were uh, investigating Riosaguat, in, in sarcoid-associated pulmonary hypertension, and we sent them two patients of ours uh, to get to get enrolled and randomized into Riosaguat. So that's the largest placebo-controlled study that I'm aware of, um, and I think the study is probably completed enrollment. I have not seen data on any preliminary data uh, on that study. Um, again, but I would say that it's still a better, very heterogeneous group. We have had people respond to treatment, but not everyone has. Um, and I think we just have to pick and choose our patients accordingly. Hey, Dr. Ryan, this is Uncle Matha. Uh, really good talk. Um, and I think we're a sarcoidosis patient. I think we had a session sometime last year about that, where I think there's a sarcoidosis patient who was admitted, didn't know he had disease, and he had some fibrocystic changes. And the best thing I could find at uh, uh, kind of trying to find anything on sarcoidosis-related pulmonary hypertension was there's a lot of, there's a few retrospective studies and uh, which varies, low, you know, low number of uh, patients um, with a few of these retrospective studies suggesting uh, those with um, either obstruction on PFTs or as well as reactivity on the uh, vasodilator challenge may be have a significant improvement with um, with uh, systemic vasodilators, but yeah, as, as mentioned, there wasn't much um, much data to really go off of. Um, and then referring to, I'd be very interested also seeing in the um, uh, in the uh, increased trial though, because I know uh, what the results are there too. Because I know with the rise too, that kind of went against, I guess, at least Rio Sigwa as being like a uh, uh, used in ILD patients um, uh, in terms of uh, restrictive lung diseases and, and vasodilators, where it showed its mortality uh, in, uh, uh, might have actually increased for the Rio Sequat those patients. But I'm uh, a little bit interested in what, the, what this inhaled study would show. 
Yeah, I mean, so the question always becomes, and so even back in 2005, you know, when the first inhaled prostacycline came out, which was Iloprost, which was branded as Ventavis, there was always this like thought that this would have, that these drugs would be like the uh, the gold mine or the panacea for group three pulmonary hypertension because of the inhaled mechanism, the avoidance of VQ mismatch and fewer systemic side effects. And it just never translated in that way. The oral drugs are interesting. Um, definitely for ILD, you know, we know that, you know, that the endothelin receptor antagonists have a black box from that's ambrosantan and bosantan definitely increase mortality. And, you know, we're pretty cautious with using phosphodiesterase inhibitors in ILDPH. So I don't know that there's a trend towards harm in sildenafil. In terms of the Riosaguat, um, I think that the company is trying to is used trying to look at Riosaguat in every patient population possible. It does seem to be safer in some subgroups. You know, definitely sickle cell disease. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously we don't use sildenafil and tadalafil, but yeah. there is some optimism with Riosaguat, which still works on nitric oxide. And uh, you know, the question is why does sildenafil and tadalafil cause harm in sickle cell disease, but Riosaguat seems to potentially be safer that I don't fully, um, I, I need to look at that a little bit closer. Uh, but I would say that if, if Tyvesa or Inhaltroprosinol gets this approval, I think it will be, um, this should be exciting. I, our own experience was that it worked. If you can tolerate the cough and you don't cough too much, it actually seemed like it worked. The problem is, I think at least a, even before the study, at least a third of the patients, we could not use the drug because they coughed too much. So yeah. depending if you can tolerate it, I think it's a it's a potential uh, potential option. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, very excited to see see what these results are. It's pretty large, I think, uh, enrollment too, right? Uh, comparably for uh, for pH. Well, well, thank you guys. You know, gosh, it's such a uh, such an, uh, oh, a very uh, limited uh, view. The hope is that with uh, you know, you know, with Steve on board, we can maybe do more of a curriculum to cover some of the pathophys and the evaluation and then the treatment kind of because each one of these things is probably its uh, its own talk. And, uh, you know, we usually try to have more people in clinic, but, you know, gosh, we have been doing all telemedicine and the cath lab has essentially been shut down for two and a half months. So hopefully we can get these things up and running again. But, uh, Thank you for uh, thank you for inviting me, and like I said, I always uh, really look forward to working with all the pulmonary fellows, and hoping we can continue next year when clinic is actually back up and open again.